I'm joined today by Dr. Barbara Murphy. Dr. Murphy is an ASM counselor. She's also the Murray Rosenberg Professor of Medicine and Department Chair for the Mount Sinai Health System. In addition, she's the Dean of Clinical Integration and Population Health for the New York System's ICANN School of Medicine. Barbara, I really appreciate your taking time to, to talk with me today. Can you describe the moment when you realized you were in the middle of a crisis? So that feels like a long time ago now, but it's not all that long ago. It's just over about five weeks ago, and I've lost a track of time <laughs> exactly. When I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation based on the doubling time and based our admissions to date and figured out how many patients we could potentially have by the 4th of April. What I projected out to was the 4th of April. And at that time, I was looking at having, based on that, around 700 patients in Mount Sinai alone. When you consider that our Mount Sinai inpatient medicine service is about 320 patients, and then I modeled it out for each of our other hospitals, and we oversee eight hospitals, and realized that we needed to get into gear really quickly. We'd already built out an ambulatory platform for how to deal with this. We had identified phases, phase one, phase two, and phase three. Phase one was where we stopped all routine well checks in all of our specialties. We, started, we were screening all of our patients by phone and, if at all possible, by telehealth before they came in. We were switching as much as was possible to telehealth, leaving only urgent cases to come in. We were calling urgent cases in advance to try and, you know, patients we knew within our, each of our specialties that were unstable, patients that were due to come in that were unstable, calling them in advance to stabilize them. And we had a huge focus on the ambulatory platform. You know, we'd mapped out that phase two would, and phase three and figured that we'd get to phase three, which was where we shut down ambulatory and really only focused on urgent issues for non-COVID and everything else would be COVID. And I realized by mapping out the numbers that that would come way quicker than we ever thought. So it was incredibly startling. We now have been using modeling as a, big data NLP person that's in our department that is modeling. And I wait for that projection every day to see what, uh, where we are in the projections um, overall and for each of our hospitals. And I will be heartened, I'm heartened to say that, I won't say the actual numbers because it will startle people, but from the time that we started doing that to now, the numbers have come down by 15,000. So, uh, and that's just for our system. So um, we're still looking at something that's probably five times more than we would ever have in our system, but they are coming down and they are, go down every single day. And I have every hope that by the time we get to the peak that we will have something that we will be able to manage. So the numbers are startling and, and the fact that you were able to project them and anticipate it and plan forward allowed you to be better positioned perhaps than, than other um, institutions. What else has surprised you about this experience? Well, so immediately when you see those numbers, you start planning for inpatients, you realize that there's no way that your current platform is going to be able to manage that. So we immediately projected out based on that. We developed a model for how we might cover looking at developing teams that were based on a medicine attending with 
what we're calling mid-levels. Those mid-levels, there's a very broad definition of what a mid-level is. Currently, uh, some of our mid-levels are orthopedic uh, attending. So anybody that you can get a hold of. Fellows are not mid-levels. Fellows become attending. We've emergency privileged our fellows because, in fact, they probably have the greatest experience, uh, most recent experience on the inpatient service in medicine. So they become they become attending and elevated. We identified every one of our recent graduates that was still within our system that was in a different specialty. We elevated them to attending. And we built out these teams utilizing uh, the greatest capabilities and expertise within medicine to oversee a team with people, uh, PAs, whether from any source within our hospital, uh, attendings or residents from any source in our hospital, again, leveraging specialties that have done prelim medicine prelim years um, to make them mid-levels. And then what we've done is created a structure where three of those teams are supervised by a supervising hospitalist. We have reorganized, on, uh, we've reorganized, there was a day where we upped and moved everybody, uh, all of our uh, the people that staffing services, uh, our, our faculty and our uh, new teams and our pre-existing teams to create geography so that these teams can go onto a floor, they look after a set number of patients and they don't move from there. We're pushing to get that they can use the same PPE and just change their gloves between patients. There's data from China that suggests that doing this drops nosocomial transmission of uh, COVID to almost zero. So we're almost at that point now because nearly all of our floors are COVID. And we have very few non-COVID patients at this point. So that, that was a huge lift. And on top of that, we layered in ID and uh, pulmonary to back up X number of floors or X number of units. Now, as we move forward, that model is changing a little bit because we're having to ask those teams to do more. But to give you an idea, within the space of a week, we put together 40 teams. We're now, that's just for Mount Sinai and the Upper East Side. We've done similarly at Morningside West in BI. We've had to staff up and create in the order of 20, 30 teams at those sites, leveraging all of our colleagues. And then we have two community hospitals that we've had to help push out to. Um, and I haven't even touched critical care. That's, um, that's being managed by someone else, so that's still my department, but they're overseeing that. And then the number of floors are regular floors that have now been converted into ICUs. I can't give you the exact number because it, it expands every day and today, again, we've pivoted because one of our other floors now is an ICU. So it's just been a moving target. We change every day. In fact, my next call is for uh, how I'm going to staff the new unit, which is the two new units. One is our cardiac outpatient practice, and the other is our lobby where we've created a whole new unit in our, in our very large atrium. Uh, we've built out a whole area for taking care of with patients with individual rooms um, and created a whole new floor there. So um, what I'm most impressed and surprised with is our faculty across every department, their willingness to come forward, their willingness to help when they have substantial commitments, personal commitments, commercial, uh, personal fears and stresses 
they are stepping forward and offering to help. It's absolutely tremendous. And it's across every level of provider and every department. And then the other thing is, I think, the innovation, the ingenuity of our leadership around repurposing floors and repurposing spaces to build out a capability across eight hospitals to take care of these patients. So there's a theme in your comments around creativity, innovation, faculty, and, and administration being able to work together and think you know, creatively about how to move forward, but also finding new space and being flexible in terms of how you envision space. Can you just sort of describe for us how you mentioned the lobby? I'm just curious about how you accommodated the facility, your facility, but then the entire network in terms of um, the need for additional space for patients. So first off, in, from the perspective of ambulatory, we have tents at all of our hospitals that were built for, for screening and testing initially. They are now being leveraged in, in different ways. A, a lot of it really are annexes to the ED for screening of patients so that the EDs don't become overrun. There's only so much space there. So we're leveraging those tents to as annexes to screen, identify individuals that are COVID, non-COVID, acute, non-acute, who can go home, who should be referred on into the ED for admission and management. There's the use of uh, floors. We're expanding into every floor in the hospital because we've canceled uh, elective procedures. We're moving out other procedures and patients to other institutions. Um, and we're leveraging those floors as additional medicine floors or additional critical care units. The use of the lobby in our institution and other large spaces like that in, in other ones of our hospital, other hospitals that we have in our system, they've literally built hospitals, built units with individual uh, rooms for patients and equipped those. And the idea of these would be lower acuity patients, obviously, and other spaces that we're looking to use, we had closed some floors in a, in a large hospital on the Lower East Side, we're, we're mobilizing that and we'll get an additional 300 beds there. We have a field hospital manned by a, an outside group. We have a field hospital in Central Park that will take care of 70 patients and as a 10 bed ICU. Uh, we are looking at additional spaces that are very creative so some of the problems with this is the patients are very sick for a long time. There's a lot, and there's a, a significant recovery period. So the average length of stay is eight to 10, ten days. Uh, so what we have to do is, is mobilize other areas so we can get patients that are convalescent but not good enough to go home and have them supervised and taken care of to make sure that they don't decompensate. Because what's very clear with this disease is it's not linear. It is absolutely not linear. Patients can be doing fine and can decompensate. They can look like they are getting better and can decompensate. Uh, so we are working with the city to expand into St. John the Divine Cathedral to put beds in there to take patients that are recovering but not well enough to go home. Uh, we are leveraging our hospital in the home. We are very advanced and always have been leaders in the area of hospital in the home. And we're leveraging that to get patients out that can be that are recovering, uh, that can be taken care of at home, 
so we can leave the space in the hospitals for the high acuity patients. We've also negotiated with various nursing homes to discharge patients to those nursing homes that, um, and deploy providers there to take care of those patients uh, so that we can maintain the hospital for acute. We're leveraging our rehab facility, et cetera. So every space is up for consideration and uh, really so that we can focus the, the main hospitals for the amount of acutely ill patients we have. Just to circle back to your comments around um, the 40 teams and, and additional teams in, in some of the affiliated hospitals, you mentioned that, that you've been impressed that, that everyone has come forward, the entire faculty and, and staff, to, to, to contribute. And I was struck about your comments about the role of fellows and, and, and residents. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how your um, just the interactions you're having with um, some of your trainees and sort of this this experience for them. This is absolutely traumatic for them. I have a call with them weekly. I had mine today, and I have to gear myself up for it emotionally because this is devastating for them. They are looking after patients that are fine one minute and crashing the next. Where you know, I think. The number of fatalities, the number of codes are like nothing that we have seen before. So this is, is really devastating for them. We have built out, we are, our psychiatry team or department has been incredibly supportive. We've leveraged all sorts of supports for providers, residents, healthcare provider, everybody that make that service available to them. Psychiatry has developed teams to deploy to make sure people are okay. Uh, we have healthcare teams to help look after these patients. The, the very sad part about this is, and I'm sure you've heard this on the news, is the patients that are ill and that do badly and that are in hospital are not allowed to have their families with them. So they're ill and scared and in hospital by themselves, which puts an additional I don't mean burden, I don't mean burden in a bad way, but puts an additional need on the healthcare providers to not only take care of these patients, but to be there to support them and allay their fears and encourage them. And here's, an, here's a great example of uh, ingenuity. A, a wonderful person that I work with who is working in one of our hospitals in Brooklyn, which has been particularly badly hit because a lot of the neighborhood is, is quite elderly and there's a lot of nursing homes nearby. He managed to get phone chargers and backup batteries to the people that were in hospital and sick because who you know, picks up their charger when they can't breathe and are running to hospital? And a lot of the people were in hospital and unable to communicate with their family because their battery had run out. So that simple thing, uh, simple solution, was able to mean that those people could stay in contact uh, do FaceTime and communicate um, with their family, which is reassuring to them and also reassuring to their, their family at the same time. Um, it's acts of kindness and acts of thoughtfulness like that that make a difference at this time. And there are so many stories. I asked my uh, one of my administrators today to please keep track of all of the good things that we are seeing in our emails because we will have one collective shout out at the end of all of this. So just curious as to, I mean, you've provided a lot of suggestions as to, as other institutions throughout the country 
the world have to address this crisis, um, ways they can think creatively about approaching it. Just if you were to step back at sort of a macro level, what would your, your overall advice be to your colleagues and other institutions, particularly people who sit where you do, where you're the chair of the Department of Medicine, you're dean for clinical integration, and then you also are responsible for population health. So you have, you're just sort of uniquely positioned to have this discussion. The biggest thing I would say is look forward. Look to where you have to go. Look to where the numbers are going and plan for that. This is not about on a, any given day, I'm, we're fine, we've got it. It's not about filling holes. It's about being strategic and mapping out where you need to be. That's the biggest message I could say. And that was a huge shift when I was trying earlier on with some uh, of the team, or when some of the groups were working right, they're like, it's okay, I've got it, we're good today. Good today doesn't work in something like this. You have to look to what are the manpower needs? What are the space needs? What are the equipment needs? You know, again, early on, the idea that a lot of these patients have renal, either renal disease because renal disease is an underlying risk factor or that they develop AKI. What are, what's our supply chain like? Have we brought in enough machines? And again, you know, there's a mental shift of saying, you know, someone saying, well, no, we've got twice the amount we need. We normally have. Well, that's not enough. We need more than that. What are the supplies like? How will we man this? The biggest uh, difficulty when it comes to dialysis is manpower and nurses. Well, how do we get around that? Can we start doing a QPD in different units? So ahead of time, we onboarded an interventional nephrologist so that we could place ourselves, and we worked with surgery to come up with a plan to be able to do at the bedside a QPD. We haven't started that yet, but we're ready. And our, I was on the phone to our nurse manager this morning about training nurses at the other site be able to do a PD, QPD. So I think really it's look ahead, look at every aspect of what you might need, not just from the nephrology perspective, you know, it's, this is the same for anybody that's dealing with this. Think of all the things you could possibly need based on the projected numbers and move towards that. This can't be a day-to-day, -day, and it's done on a day-to-day -day basis. And what would your message be to the media in terms of, I mean, I'm sure you haven't seen all the coverage, but just related to how they're covering this and sort of the way they're they're describing the situation? I think it's very important to get, to emphasize, as many of them have been, is the social distancing, the self-isolation. We clearly have seen a change in the curve here, a change in the peak can't emphasize that enough. But it's also not to create fear in the population. It's about remaining calm, preparing, and doing the right thing. That's, that's really what the news has to, to focus on. Be calm, be prepared. So I've been noticing that people in emails have started adding the tagline, be strong, stay safe, remain healthy. That's kind of gonna be the mantra moving forward. I guess we, we should add also, um, project ahead and, and plan strategically. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. 
This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the American Society of Nephrology.